This episode is brought to you by Zencaster, the amazing platform I've been using to record the audio and video versions of this show since March 2020. It is the number one tool I recommend to podcasters. So if you're thinking of starting your own show or optimizing one you already have, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try, and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. WELLEVATOR is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. I am really excited to do this episode today because the guest, Corey, is someone that I felt at ease with on a level that I think recently I've become aware that I don't feel with everyone. And that's due to my explorations around neurodivergence. And I did not know that term, actually, until fairly recently. I don't remember when it occurred. I think it actually was part of a podcast episode. So whenever I did the first podcast episode about neurodivergence, which I will link to in the show notes for this one, For those that want to see all references for this episode, it'll be at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. I'll have the transcript and any reference, including that other episode. And learning that word was so key for me because I started to identify my own neurodivergence, which had never been really presented to me before. And the more I learn about things like ADHD and autism, as we're going to explore today, I have this simultaneously feeling of, wow, I finally feel like I'm understanding myself on a whole new level. And then a sadness of wishing that this had been brought to my attention before for myself and for others. Because the more I learn about neurodivergence, the more I see opportunities to not make assumptions about someone, to really honor people and ask them questions and ultimately understand that they're not exactly like us and their brains work differently. And Corey, you had posted something on your Instagram that really resonates, and I'm going to read it. It says, my functioning ability is based on any given moment at any given time on any given day. It could be a moment where I'm fully capable of being an adult and fully capable of learning and doing all freaking things. Or it could mean that I'm just so overwhelmed and so overloaded with everything around me that I'm just not capable of doing the things. And I think that's an important starting point because overwhelm and overload are are very relatable feelings. But I imagine it's on a whole nother level when you are diagnosed with neurodivergence like autism and or, and or ADHD. So we can start off with that post or perhaps we can start off with a little background because you were diagnosed late in life. Is that right? That's right. I was actually diagnosed in April of... 2020, formally diagnosed because I did my self-diagnosis on ADHD and attentive type in 2019 is when I think I started going down that particular path. I'm a quiz junkie, so I was taking all these different quizzes on, you know, more what it was like to be an INFJ, what it was like to be a highly sensitive person, empath, and that kind of thing. The HSP part spurned over into sensory processing, and somehow that led me to looking more at ADHD. And that piece, I think, for me just opened up so many things. It's like you were saying as well, that so many things just started to click and to fall into place. 
oh, okay, so that's why I struggle with this particular thing. It's not that there's something wrong. It's just my brain is wired differently. Like, all right, so now that I know what it is, I can look into ways to not really, uh, I don't want to say fix it, but to compensate, to, to come up with strategies and things like that. And so how did you go about getting the diagnosis? Because when I started looking into neurodivergence and wondering about my own, I felt at a loss for how to actually get evaluated for it. And actually, I'm still pursuing that very casually now. But I talked to my doctor, I was referred to a psychiatrist, but I didn't feel like I got to the bottom of it. So how did you? Well, what ended up happening is that I was connected with an autistic business owner. And she and I had just gotten to this conversation. And we were just talking very casually about the diagnosis process. And she referred me to someone because I mentioned, you know, I wasn't very sure if my primary care physician would be on board with recommending diagnosis just because with adults, there's this tendency to say that, oh, you're an adult, you don't need it. Or you're an adult, there's no possible way that you could have ADHD, that you could have autism, that you could have any one of those neurodivergences. And, and I just sat there, I was like, no, I want to pursue this because I've always been on the mindset that if I needed the extra support, the extra if I needed to be on medication, then I wanted to be able to have that open. And that was why I pursued an official diagnosis. So I went into my diagnosis, or not my diagnosis, my evaluation, fully convinced I would walk out of there with the ADHD. That was just, you know, it's like, okay, this is what I have. And then as the evaluation's wrapping up, she's like, I think you're not even wrapping up. It was maybe less than halfway through. She said, I think I'm going to bring in more pieces to the evaluation questions. And I, I paused for a second and was like, oh, why is that? Said, because some of what you're telling me doesn't quite match up with ADHD. It's like, oh, okay. And as we're progressing through, finally get to the end of it, she said, you're right about the ADHD inattentive type, but there's also autism level one. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> that Bring it on. It explains even more. So, Wow. I mean, that must have been a fascinating experience and also perhaps surprising because one thing that I'm excited to explore with you today is kind of the nuances and the the true spectrum of this because I know for me when I think of autism I think of it very far on the spectrum and and very specific types of behavior in fact there's a TV show at Netflix that you and others may be familiar with called Love on the Spectrum and they have people on this show that tend to exhibit some of these traits that I consider to be classic signs of autism, right? But but I, for you, having gone through so much of your life, not even knowing, was it a big surprise? And how did you react to the, this news? And where did you go from there? What I've learned a lot throughout my own, you know, kind of research and through talking with others who are also diagnosed late in life is that so many of us, we grow up either misdiagnosed or just not diagnosed at all. And especially with females, there's a tendency to diagnose more with either anxiety or depression. And I've been diagnosed with both. <laughs> so that was, I think, just part of my clue there. And then I have a, she's going to be 21 this year, autistic daughter. And she is 
when she got diagnosed, she was diagnosed with what they did call classic autism. It would now be considered autism level. She's in between level two and three. So she's non-speaking. She does exhibit a lot of those kind of stereotypical behaviors. But there are some things that she and I both do on stimming wise that are kind of the exact same. We have some similar triggers. I think it takes a little bit more for me than it does for her. I think that was just the other thing was that looking at so many of the supports that have put into place in the environment, in our home environment for her, the routine, the structure, the schedules, it was supporting me almost not as much as her, but it was supporting me as well. And when I talked to my mom about it, which I just shot her this quick text to say, oh, by the way, I got my autism ADHD dual diagnosis today. And she just texted back. She's like, that explains a lot. Like, huh, all right, mom. And when I look back on that too, it's part of the piece that goes on with some autistic individuals, not all, is hyperlexia. So it's when you learn how to read at an early age or you just have like a more fluid vocabulary. I've always been a very well-spoken individual and I was reading two or three grades above my level. I read over the summer, I think when I was like either 12 or 13, I read Wuthering Heights just for fun. <laughs> and so the, my strengths though were there, was always in the language arts and English, but then I struggled big time with math, which I've, I think identified as the dyscalculia, which is like dyslexia, but it's with numbers. So instead of reversing your letters, you reverse your numbers and you have difficulty with finances, difficulty with just like basic simple math, which is something I've always struggled with. But you get me into things like logic and statistics, and I'm spot on with those. It was, yeah, so it's just looking at more things and realizing it's like, all right, this makes so much sense. And I'd said it once on one of my podcast episodes. It wasn't as if I had just one light bulb moment, it was as if the whole another entire universe was just being illuminated. And that for me is what it felt like after getting the dual diagnosis and then just allowing myself the time to, as they say in the ADHD world, to hyper-focus on it. And, and you know, I've talked to a lot of, quite not a lot, but quite a few women who are also on the dual diagnosis, the ADHD and autism. And one of their big things after their own diagnosis self or formal was also letting themselves hyper-focus on it because once they understood more, they were better able to kind of just adapt and see, you know, another thing. We also realized where we've been masking and or it's camouflaging. It's common for both autistics and ADHDers. And it's basically where we are trying to not show what makes us autistic or ADHD. So we look normal or we look neurotypical. So things like for me, I've been told I have a kind of monotonous voice. So it was regulating that or it was making sure that I was actually making eye contact with somebody, trying not to fidget too much or just other little things that weren't societal norm. And I got kind of sick of that. So I said, no more. I'm done masking. I'm done camouflaging. I'm ADHD, I'm autistic, and that's just how it is. 
I'm really glad that you brought up the subject of masking because this is something I've been wanting to address on the show for a while. I've noticed it being discussed a lot more recently than in the past. And you mentioned before we started recording that you're on TikTok. And TikTok has been such a fascinating place to learn about neurodivergence. Although there's an article I've been meaning to read recent uh, that I just saw last night, actually, about how social media is like TikTok is great for helping people understand things that they didn't know about. But there's a huge issue right now where people self-diagnosing themselves. And I fell into this category too. And this is why I really want to pursue an official evaluation because through TikTok, I started seeing things like masking. I started seeing things like some of the symptoms or the, the elements of someone that would classify them as autistic or ADHD and, and, I saw these and thought, oh my gosh, that's me. Wow. Like I didn't even know, like, what if I do have ADHD? You know, what if I am another type of neurodivergent, like all because of a platform like TikTok. And and then when I saw this article explaining how a lot of people are going through that similar experience as me, it, it made me step back and think, okay, like this is fascinating because it's like collectively a lot of people are are identifying with these things that maybe many of us have been masking. And even though not everybody is going to be neurodivergent, what if like some of the things that we consider neurodivergent or needing to mask are actually experiences that a lot of people are having, but we're all collectively masking it. So (laughs) we all think that there's something wrong with us that we have to hide. But if we could take off the mask and reveal these things about ourselves, maybe we would be more accepted than we expect. And I think there's a movement happening, especially with uh, younger millennials and Gen Z who are sharing a lot of these things. They're owning up to them in a way that gives others permission. And so there's part of me as I was hearing your story about your diagnosis that thought, wow, like I kind of hope that I am diagnosed <laughs> as neurodivergent because it would it maybe would explain something. But then I have to release that that hope and recognize the truth is I just want to feel more understood and more comfortable. And what if it's not about being diagnosed with something, but it's about feeling permission to be fully myself without having to mask. And I think it's so wonderful that you're sharing all this information on your social media and your podcast to educate people about these things and empower them because everybody can learn from it, neurodivergent or not. That was honestly the other big piece behind wanting to get the diagnosis, the formal one, official one, was to me, it would just really give me that more solid, I guess, frame and foundation of, okay, so this really is what it is. And when you talked about that, um, the article, it came up in one of the groups that I'm in as well about how there just there seems to be this surge of self-diagnosed and it's becoming almost a hot topic in quite a few of the neurodivergent groups that I've learned to because I'm in the frame of mind that a self-diagnosis is a 100% valid diagnosis and that even though someone ha- does have a formal or official diagnosis, it's not on us to gatekeep. It's not on us to hold someone back from being able to embrace that self-diagnosis and identify with it. Do I think there is, there are merits to a formal diagnosis? Absolutely. 
But at the same time, I also feel that's a very individual decision. And at the end of the day, we can't be the ones to judge somebody as to whether or not they want to get an official diagnosis. And I think that's the thing too with like with social media is that we are seeing so many people now, maybe it's just we're all bored and, you know, COVID. I'm not a social creature by nature. Large crowds and large groups of people just are not my cup of tea. And But being on social media, it allows me to really people watch and to really observe and just to see things and to also just be myself without this overall anxiety and nervousness and fear of, oh my God, this person's looking at me or this person's going to hear me say something or this person is watching or this or that. And it takes away that barrier and it takes away that need to have to mask which is beautiful because it does, it gives us this platform and it gives us this gateway really to show up as we are. It's why I named my socials and my coaching business Authentically Autistic and ADHD. The full version is Authentically Autistic and ADHD as fuck. Because um, it's just like, you know, I've come to this point in my life, I'm going to be 40 on my next birthday. And I'm done just being a people pleaser and I'm done living in this imposter syndrome and I'm done, you know, just so over all the societal norms, societal expectations, not just what people expect for neurodivergence, but what they expect for females, what they expect for, you know, just for moms in general, because I am a mom. And I had gotten to this point, I'm just like, no, fuck that shit. I have a life. I am a woman. I I know what I want in life and I'm going to go after it. And that's what I've been doing, you know, for myself for the past three or four years is just really stepping into who I am as an individual. And as I've titled it, it's the third episode. I think of my podcast was called Embrace Your Extraordinary because that's what it is. It's this beyond just self-love and beyond self-acceptance. Those are two big parts of it, but it's embracing all of those things that make you who you are and saying, you know, kind of fuck you to society. I'm not afraid to be me. I'm not afraid to be who I am anymore. And so that's why I do what I, well, part of what I do, part of why I do what I do with the transformational purpose, it is, it's this inner big inner journey and it takes getting uncomfortable because you have to face a lot of things. But the end result ultimately is so worth it because you come out of it with this authentic level of authenticity and this level of just awareness about yourself. Are you going to still second guess? Are you going to, of course you are. It's human nature. And I think you know, part of the thing that I see with ADHD women in particular, it's the imposter syndrome. Just one of those things. And the rejection sensitive dysphoria, those are two big things that ADHDers deal with. So, are these things going to be there? Absolutely. That's why I weave in its life strategy. So, it's not just these coping strategies and other things that I've used on my own, but these strategies that are able to be adapted for anybody. So, what works for me may not work for someone else. I would fully expect that. That's why, you know, you take the base. And you make it your own because, you know, it's not cookie cutter. Absolutely. And I I think it's really important that acknowledging that it's not cookie cutter because so much advice out there is cookie cutter and one size fits all. And for those that 
feel like they don't fit into a certain mold, that can actually be really tough because you begin to think that there's something wrong with you if a certain strategy or approach doesn't work. And the rejection sensitive uh, side of it is something I'd love for you to touch more on because that was, I think, the moment when I read about, it's, it's called dysphoria, is that the term? Rejection sensitive dysphoria. When I first read about that, it was a huge aha moment. I mean, because I fully identified with it. And that's actually, I think, the time when I thought I wanted to go pursue getting diagnosed. And another thing that I had seen on your Instagram was a, a post about executive dysfunction. And that was another big thing because I'd been struggling so much. I thought that there was something wrong with me. I thought, okay, am I burnt out? <laughs> okay, let me take a break. Let me slow down. Let me see if I can like become not burnt out. And nothing seemed to work. It w- it's been a daily thing. And again, even, even if it turns out that I don't have ADHD or another form of neurodivergence, at least knowing these terms and the tools like you're mentioning, those are still helpful, even if you're not neurodivergent, because learning something that you can relate to, to your point, that in itself could help you better understand what you need and also help you feel more empowered. Because one thing that I've struggled with and still do to this day, I now have awareness about it, which has been very empowering, but I still need to learn some more tools perhaps or build some more confidence within myself is because I felt like I operate differently, I feel scared to speak up for myself. I feel scared to ask for what I need. And earlier today or yesterday, actually, I was experiencing this in the context of um, a group that I'm in, a group project online. And I feel a little intimidated by some of the people that are in the group, <laughs> you know, that feeling of like, oh my gosh, they're, they are so much better at this than me. And that led me to be afraid to ask for some of the basic things that I need to thrive in a group setting. And i was reflecting on how I could navigate that and why I was feeling these things, why I was afraid to verbalize something that might feel trivial to someone else. And as I was reflecting it, I started to think of all the times in my life where I've asked for something and someone didn't have the compassion or awareness to realize how important it was. And and one experience I've had over and over again in my life is someone saying, oh, you just need to adjust to what everybody else is doing. You're the only one that needs that. Well, everybody else is doing it this way. Phrases like that. Whenever I hear everybody else is, even saying that out loud, I feel the pit in my stomach of, oh, well, no one else can relate to me. So there must be something wrong with me. I don't fit in. I need to mask. I need to mold myself. I won't get my needs met. And then I've noticed the pattern of resentment building, the pattern of not being able to thrive, not being able to do my best because no matter how hard I I try to mask or cope or mold myself, I also know deep down how important those needs are. So they're true needs in the sense that I cannot fully operate without them being met, but I've tried so many times to do them. And thus, that's maybe where the, the cycle of feeling like a failure has come from, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I'm going to be touching on this in a couple of future episodes of the podcast, one dedicated fully to imposter syndrome and another dedicated fully to rejection sensitive 
dysphoria because I feel like they go hand in hand. And one thing that I've asked people in quite a few of the groups that I'm in, how many of you are would describe yourselves as recovering perfectionists or recovering people pleasers? Yeah, that was one of the big things that I think a lot of us in these neurodivergent groups, we've been identifying as our recovering people pleasers and recovering perfectionists. And the people pleasing part ties into that rejection sensitive dysphoria because there is such a great need for acceptance and validation because we have a very hard time with with our own sense of self-esteem and our own sense of self that we're relying on others for that. And because we want to be accepted, there's just this great need to be accepted. So we'll do whatever it takes. And that also leads to a lack of ability to set proper boundaries, which I think there's also kind of that misconception around boundaries. It's like boundaries are meant to, you know, protect other people. No, boundaries are meant to protect you and only you. And they don't need to be understood by others. They don't need to be greatly explained to others. They don't need to make sense to others. What matters is that they are in place for you and so that you can feel comfortable. And when you're stuck in that kind of people-pleasing cycle, it whittles away at your self-esteem. And that's where also the rejection-sensitive dysphoria and the imposter syndrome, like I said, I think they go hand in hand which imposter syndrome is just that feeling of, I'm not good enough. This person is better than me. I'll never be good enough. I may know enough, but I don't know quite that much, which is where the perfectionism piece comes in. So again, for so many of us who did identify as recovering perfectionists and formal pe- former people pleasers, there's so much overlap again, with the imposter syndrome and the rejection-sensitive dysphoria. It was just kind of eye-opening. And I just sat there for a second and was like, hey, so I'm not alone in that. And then the other one that I love to bring up is um, procrastination, because that's a big executive dysfunctioning piece. It's time blindness. It's all these other things. So they all just come together. And once you see those Seeing it in yourself, I think, is one thing because you do, you get that layer of awareness and you get this layer of self-discovery. But seeing it in others, there's this t-shirt I have, it's called, it says, Weird Must Day, the weirdness in me recognizes the weirdness in you. (laughs) And that's how it feels. It's, you know, if you want to call it ADHD Must Day or Autistic Must Day or Neurodiversion Must Day, you know. The neurodivergent in me recognizes the neurodivergent in you. And I think it's so beautiful because, again, for so many of us who do have a lot of social anxiety, being online, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult because you are dealing with strange individuals, not strange in you know the weird sense, but people that you don't know. But being able to be around other neurodivergent women and not have to worry about, okay, if I say the wrong thing, if I act the wrong way, if I sit here and I stim, they're going to judge me. You don't have to worry about that. And it's so wonderful. Before March 2020, every guest on this show recorded with me in person because I wanted to ensure the highest quality sound possible. 
but this took extra time and effort to produce, plus it limited me to people who were visiting or living in Los Angeles. When I switched to Zencaster, I realized how much easier remote recording was for me and my guests. Now everyone can easily record studio quality sound from the comfort of their own homes. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com and enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan, which is what I use. I can't wait to hear your show, so send it over to me as soon as it's live. That does sound so wonderful. I, I feel a lot of emotions coming up and I, I need to tap into your community because, yeah, it's impacted me in so many ways. And, and that some, it's also something that I didn't even realize impacted me that much until I learned about this, right? So it's like now I'm, I'm learning, but I'm also unraveling all of these emotions that I couldn't even put a name to before. I mean, what you're describing, I wanted to talk more about procrastination because that is something I've struggled with my whole life. And I felt so much shame around it because in our society, procrastination or being late, not following through, those things are really looked down upon. And all of my experience in school, my experiences in a lot of jobs, holding on to this weight and this pressure, trying again, also trying to fit the structure. I knew when I stopped working for others, I quit my last full-time job uh, like 12 years ago now. It was such a huge relief to wake up whenever I wanted to because for my whole life, I've struggled against the typical hours that people wake up and work and go to school never worked for me. And I was constantly struggling with my energy as a result. So the freedom to just set my own schedule was huge, but also work at timeframes that work for my brain because I've noticed that I can only focus for chunks of time and then I need to take a break and I want to zone out. I need to recover my energy. You, you pointed out the social side of it. For the last few years, I realized that social interaction drains me so much. And I, I, to your point earlier too, I attributed that to something like being introverted. I thought, oh, well, I'm an introvert. Of course, I get drained by other people. But then I would talk to other introverts and think, mm, there's still something here that doesn't make sense. But for so long, just masking and trying to fit in, trying to fit in over and over again. And I want to bring that back around to the procrastination side of this and hear more about what you've learned. I've identified as someone who works best at the 11th hour. And I've carried shame around that too. Because what I do is I get overwhelmed and I really feel like I can only get things done at the 11th hour. So I procrastinate. And then the last minute is when I will finally be hyper-focused. And I, it's like, I have i don't know if I need that pressure or I've trained myself to need that pressure or thrive on that pressure. I'm really curious to hear what you've learned about procrastinating through all your work. Part of that is it's the adrenaline rush that you get because your body is just kind of craving it. And I think that's just, it's our own internal conditioning. At least that's my on it because I'm the same way. <laughs> and I remember you know, when I was in high school, my mom would always tell me, she's like, you know, if you would just apply yourself a little bit more, it's like, yeah, I know, mom, I still got really good grades. And I would have these, you know, term papers and whatever else do. 
that I would just wait until the absolute last minute on and I would still get, you know, an A or an A plus or whatever the highest possible <laughs> was for it. And I think for me, that was partially the adrenaline rush, but then it was also just this kind of recognition of, I don't need to work as hard as everybody else because I'm going to be able to get it done anyway. So why not? But to tie that back into the procrastination piece, I think one of the biggest things that I've come across first is breaking this whole myth around time management because you can't manage time. Time is not a physical entity. You just, you can't manage time. What you can do is manage yourself and what you do with your time. And that goes into like the time blindness. So that's not being aware of how much time is passing. And it's another very common executive dysfunctioning thing. So for example, like I use a combination of time blocking and pomodoros. So with my time blocks, I have certain hours, certain times of the day where I'm going to do certain things. And the Pomodoro is a 25 minute, five minute break. So you do 25 minutes of focused work, five minutes of just, okay, time to take my break and refocus and just recuperate and recover. And then I get back into the 25 minutes. They work beautifully when you're not hyper-focusing. And I think that's just been the other thing too, is learning to work with the hyper-focusing because sometimes I think it's okay. I can get a lot done when I'm hyper-focused on something. My big thing there though is, okay, is this a productive use of my time or is this just me procrastinating because I don't want to do something else? And so it really is just that, I don't want to say understanding, but awareness of your own of yourself and being really honest with yourself. It's like my forms of procrastination come across in several ways. It's procrastinating researching. So I put things off in the name of research and wanting to know all the things. It's procrastinating planning, which putting things off in the name of making sure that everything's planned perfectly and all of my plans have a backup plan and planning out every single possible step and Procrastinate scrolling, which, you know, that looks a lot like just going on Facebook to say, oh, I need to go do some market research and then just getting so caught up in Facebook that I'm just like not doing anything. So again, however you do procrastinate, however you do, you know, whatever, it's just that level of self-awareness and saying, okay, this is what I'm doing. But because I know what I'm doing, now I know ways that I can support and scaffold. And like I said, it was those strategies before because I've tried traditional time management, time management strategies that just did not work for me that other people swore by, like using a planner. I can't use a planner to save my life. They become this nice little stack where I can raise things higher. But other than that, I've got a drawer full of happy planner stickers. They're absolutely beautiful, but I can't commit to them long-term it's just not going to work. So this was the first year, knock on wood, that I have not yet bought a planner and I'm sticking to it because like I said, you know, people are like, oh, you should try the happy planner. It'll help you so much or try bullet journaling or try this or try that. And I have, and I found what my biggest struggle was with those was that you know how they have the little hours inside of the planners and they have the little deadlines and things on the schedule. 
when I would look at those and I would say, okay, I'm going to do this, whatever time this is, if I didn't meet that deadline, <laughs> I would get so crushed <laughs> because I felt like a failure. <laughs> like, oh my God, my whole day is ruined. Now I can't do anything. And so that for me, as I don't know, almost as minuscule as it is, or as tiny of a thing as it is, it was just so crushing. It's like, I can't do it. Nope. I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's a very relatable thing. For me, I can, planners will work for me sometimes and not others. Like it's a more of a fluid thing. And I have major frustration with buying something and not using it all. So also what you're sharing about like just not buying one. <laughs> I also feel like sometimes planners, I need like a reward from them. Like I work very well in seeing progress. I actually use a digital to-do list uh, platform that is like a game changer for me because every day it gives me a list of everything I, I want to do. I'm setting it myself. You can set it by priorities. And when you check off something on this, it has a little ding and it's like you hear the ding and it's like activates your brain in a reward way, but also just the, the satisfaction of checking it off that I get digitally is so different than a physical planner. <laughs> I was laughing at myself when you were talking about it turns into a stack like that is such a relatable thing. And speaking of being relatable, I, I'm curious about what you've learned for people who work in a more structured environment. Because as I mentioned, I work for myself now, which really has made a huge difference for my mental health. Just I always thought it was like a personality thing. Maybe it is. But for a while, I thought, well, everybody could work for themselves if they wanted to. And then over time, I realized that's not always the case. There's a lot of things that come into play. There's privilege, there's resources, there's a lot of factors and experience and connections. I mean, on and on. It's working for yourself is truly not for everybody. I know that now. Some people prefer to work for others or some people feel like, or maybe straightforward, that's their only option at the time. So I'd love to know more about what you found for neurodivergent brains in those settings where maybe they don't have as much say or control in their day. Before you get into that, though, I was trying to find this. Uh, I thought it was some recent news, but maybe it was um, something that was just brought up on, on social media again. But in some countries, I think it was either Iceland or Finland, maybe both. And, and also some places in the U.S. have now been experimenting with different types of structure, such as four-day work weeks for their full-time employees and six-hour workdays versus the classic five-day work weeks and eight-hour, nine-hour days. And the amount of people who have been commenting on, on this and how much of a difference it would make from them is really pointing out how we're, we're craving a different structure than what we have. But if we don't feel like we're allowed to have a different structure, we feel kind of stuck in a setting that makes us feel miserable, but some people truly don't feel like they have a choice. And then, of course, as you mentioned earlier with COVID, uh, one of the big realizations that I think has come out of that, of course, is working from home and people realizing that that was an option. I remember when I read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss about probably 13, 14 years ago now, which is nuts. I was working a full-time job. And I'm reading this book thinking, oh my gosh, if only my employer would let me work from home once a week, I would feel so much better. 
but I didn't feel like it was an option because at that time, working from home was like a very rare thing. Now that some people are allowed to do that or encouraged to do that, I think there's a big shift in mental health. But I would just love to hear all of your perspectives for those that are in a corporate environment or uh, maybe retail or restaurants. And it seems like there's a lot of struggle there. I worked in retail. I was never full-time in retail, but I was always a part-time person in retail. And I think some of us do find our strengths there because you get to do a lot of observation. If it's your thing and that's just it, is that if it matches up with your own interests and it's something that you feel kind of passionately about, then you can find ways to compensate. But it's also, I think, becoming comfortable enough to advocate for yourself and say, you know, I need these things or these things will help me better. So getting those workplace accommodations This would be the only other reason I think that I would ever advise for someone to pursue an official and formal diagnosis is because it helps you to get workplace accommodations in place if you are dealing with a particularly combative employer. Because then you can say, well, I need these accommodations according to, you know, it's federal law. (laughs) So, And to that end, I think for some individuals, autistic individuals in particular, having the structure, having the routine in place can be very, very comforting just because there's the predictability there. You don't have to deal with any level of surprise. And again, it is, it's just predictability and the routine. So that helps a lot. But at the same time, we all know what's going to work best for us. And I don't think we should be afraid to pursue a career that we know works for us. So if it's whether it's, you know, leveraging one of our special interests, if it's leveraging something that, you know, other kind of strengths and really leaning into that, because otherwise, like you were saying, it really does take such a toll on your mental health that, and I don't, I think there's become more awareness of it, especially over the last year with the Olympics, with, um, you know, Simone Biles, when she dropped out of the competitions, or not, not the competitions, but when she dropped out of those particular events that took her out of the running for the all around, which she was a heavy favorite to win. I mean, she's one of the greatest gymnasts of our time, possibly ever. And she prioritized her mental health enough to say that she needed to take a break. And I think we all owe it to ourselves to honor that as well. Yes. And same with Naomi Osaka, who made similar decisions. We actually covered an episode on that when that had happened, because it was such an amazing thing to witness. And yet it was also very sad to see the reaction that some people had, the stigma there of like, how dare you prioritize yourself over the team? Or how dare you prioritize yourself over this important event, right? Like look at the ripple effect. And I think, again, that's where the shame comes in that we still really need to shift. What you're sharing is absolutely true. You know, I had a flashback to my retail experience as you were talking about yours because I ultimately left my job. I I was working at the Apple store, which was like, I was so proud of that. I loved working for Apple. Like you said, there were so many elements of it that really worked for my brain and personality. Uh, but I ultimately left because they were not willing to accommodate my schedule needs. And they would, I was asking them over and over again, can you please make sure I'm scheduled later in the day? Because when you schedule me early in the morning, I don't function as well. 
And they flat out refused to do that. And I had to leave because it was either the people pleasing or trying to fit myself into this box to appease my boss or honoring my my wellness because I was falling apart at the hours that they are giving me. And it just wasn't worth it. But it was heartbreaking. It was a very hard decision to make. And I, you know, maybe now, flash forward many years later, things are different. And I hope that they are. I hope that more people in management positions are trained in working with their their employees to accommodate truly their mental needs, you know? And I, I think sleep actually still has so many stigmas. It's it's a big challenge for me throughout my life is people not understanding the hours that I thrive in um, and the hours I need to sleep. And that's taken a lot of self-work for me to own up to it. Like you were saying before too, Corey, I forget how you phrased it, but it was so beautifully said about us knowing what we need. And I think that's one of the core things here is like really taking the time to sit down and understand your basic needs, your priorities, your boundaries, as you mentioned, maybe it was around there. You said earlier that boundaries are meant to protect you and only you. You They don't need to be understood by others. But I still want to circle back to the workplace because I had a friend text me the other day in her job, which she really loves. She's now struggling with the way that they're handling COVID because they wanted their employees to come back from working from home and go back into the office. And she wasn't ready to do that COVID-wise. So her health was um, not... Her health boundaries were not being respected. And she believes now that she's going to have to leave the job because they're not willing to accommodate that. So what happens in the case for someone who's terrified of losing their income, but is faced with this huge decision about not working in an environment that their health needs and boundaries are not being respected. Like, how do you navigate through that? I think ultimately what that does come down to is it is, is honoring yourself and honoring your needs and kind of looking at that bigger picture, like 10 years down the line, five years down the line, even one year from now, if you're still in this, I guess I've heard the term before, you know, soul sucking job that is it worth it? What does your mental health look like? What does your emotional health look like? What does your physical health look like? And it really is just being very honest about it and saying and thinking. It's like, okay, well, yeah, the money is nice, but you know, how much, and I think for that aspect of it too, it's how much do you really need from your job? financially and could you find another way to do that could you line up another job could you i think to that end and maybe this is just because of covid and everybody who is working at home or working from home is the rise in entrepreneurship and self-employment and even not just you know self-employment and entrepreneurship but if you look at your job skills and you look at the jobs that you've had over the past five, 10 years, there are so many things that are translatable over to, I think, the online space that people just don't think about. Like retail, for example, that's customer service, that's customer support, that's some pieces and aspects of marketing. And all of us, to some extent, we're consumers. So we look at marketing. Some of us may look at it from a very different lens depending on our background 
and whatever else we've been exposed to. But I think there's always skill sets that are going to be translatable from a real world, well, not real world, but like, you know, an in-person aspect to an online aspect. And it can be difficult, I think, for us to do it ourselves, just because we can say we can be so dismissive of the things that we do and the things we accomplish. So my advice there is to have a close friend um, help you with that, just to say, it's like, all right, well, I know how to do this, this, and this, but I don't think it's really you know, going to be worth anything. So you may think that it's not worth anything or that it's not, you know, translatable to a job skill, but a friend of yours could look at it and say, oh, well, it's this, this, and this, where, you know, just for the examples there, or, you know, look at the hobbies that you have and you can say, it's like, oh, well, this hobby could translate really nicely. My, I guess one caveat with hobbies is don't take a hobby that you really do truly enjoy as a hobby and make it into a job because then you're going to end up hating that hobby. <laughs> and that's just not fun. So. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Actually, that reminds me of a resource I just heard about in the past week, which is HireMyMom.com. And at first I thought, that's, that name's a little strange. I, I'm not a big fan of that title, but it, it what is neat about it is that it's targeted towards mothers. And I know both of us, uh, Corey and myself, our audiences, there's a lot of women and there's a lot of mothers. And so I felt like this was worth mentioning. You can go on here to either post a job or find a job. So if you're looking to hire somebody remotely, if you're looking to get a remote job, you can go onto that website. It's supporting small businesses. It looks really wonderful. And I'm glad that I learned about it. And I love that it's really acknowledging the needs and and boundaries of mothers too, because certainly that plays a big role in what you're able to take on. And, And that's something else I want to address with you today, Corey, which is you said that many of your listeners and followers online have lost their identity entirely due to their societal roles and they're ready to make a true change. And I'm curious if for you to talk more about what that means for them to have lost their identity due to societal roles. Is that around motherhood? Is that around them being women? Is that around something else in their lives that they're feeling um, constrained by or lost in? I think it's just all of those things. And sometimes it comes from and starts with your own family. Just speaking from experience, my mom has her master's degree and she has her Juris Doctorate. So I always had these own internal expectations of myself that I was going to go to at least a PhD because that's what my mother did. So certainly if she did it, then I can do it too. And so it's not just the family and the cultural expectations, but it is that I think it's society expectations, like what's expected of, you know, any individual wherever they fall in life. And you do, you start to to lose yourself into that and you start to place so much of your self-worth and your self-esteem based on, or at least speaking from my own experience, on how well you're performing based on whatever society's roles are or based on whatever people expect you to do. And I think that it's something that's long overdue for change. You can't, it's like the, the one saying the keeping up with the Joneses. You, you can't keep comparing yourself to, to this person, to that person, to whomever, because you don't see what's going on in their life. You don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know what other kind of support they have. 
And in that same hand, I think it's important for people just to to be very mindful and be very cognizant about that, is that my situation is my situation. It's not going to be the same as somebody else's. It's not going to be the same, you know, really as anybody else's, not the exact same. There might be parts that are relatable. There might be parts that are, okay, I can empathize with that or I can recognize pieces, but it's not the exact same because it's my set of experiences that come in are completely different. So I think that's where it is. Yeah. And speaking of set of, well, circumstances, you were a teen mom. Is that right? I'm curious what, what that was like, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of judgment around having a child as a teenager, getting pregnant. And I'm curious how that shaped you and what your experiences were, what you've learned from that. Yeah. I had my first child when I was 16 and it was either after he was born or before he was born. I was It was before he was born. I was sitting with my guidance counselor and we were talking about my schedule for next year. My guidance counselor had said to me, he's like, oh, well, you can always, in New York State, there's a track, it's called a Regents Diploma, and it's kind of a higher recognition than a run-of-the-mill high school diploma. And I was in an AP class, advanced placement. I was in honors classes. But my guidance counselor at the time had suggested, he's like, oh, well, you can, you know, drop out of the Regents track and go to the school level, or you can just drop out of high school altogether and go for your GED. And I got very, very offended by that for him to just think that, you know, I'm not going to push aside all that I've accomplished academically. No, thank you. (laughs) And I think that just kind of drove my own ambition and determination to just kind of prove my guidance counselor wrong, that I didn't need to drop out, that I could keep carrying my course load. And I said, no, I'm not going to drop out. I'm not going to go for my GED. I'm going to stay on my track. That just didn't make sense to me to not do it. So I had my schedule structured in such a way that I was able to leave school after lunch. I still took my AP classes. I still took my honors classes. I graduated with my Regents diploma. This was right before my junior year. And I was in American history AP. And part of the whole advanced placement thing is that you take the SAT twos at the end of the school year. I took my SAT two in American history and I got a 720 on my SAT two out of an 800. (laughs) And I kind of wanted to rub that in my guidance counselor's face. Like, look, you wanted me to drop out. You wanted me to do this, but I just got a 720 on my SAT two. So take that. It just, and there still is, I think, a lot of judgment. There's a lot of stigma passed around for teen moms because you we look at them and say, it's like, how could you be so irresponsible? How could you be so negligent? How could you be this or that? One reason that really rubs me the wrong way is because it takes two to make a baby. So you can't just blame the mom, first of all. Second of all, Oh, where is the compassion? Where is the support? Where is the, do you need anything? Do you, what's your support system like? What's your support structure like? Because it doesn't happen always, but I think it happens enough that when girls, teenagers, young girls, when they do become pregnant, sometimes they're shunned and disowned by their families. And then they really truly have nothing and they have no one. So who's reaching out to them? Who's supporting them? Who is providing them 
with at least some kind of structure, who's providing them with at least a helping hand. And not in a way of pity, but in a way to show them that they still matter and that they are still someone. And that, yeah, maybe you made a mistake, but that doesn't mean that you need to be judged and shunned for for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Where did the support come from for you? Where did you find it? Did you have to seek it out? Did you already have it in place with family and friends? I was very fortunate. Um, I had my mom as my main support network and I have my, my dad's family. My dad's family lives on the West Coast or on the East Coast, but I still had their support. And even just having, I think, that moral and emotional support was still huge. And not having to bear that kind of, I think, the shame. Because I think that is something that a lot of teen girls go through when they do get pregnant, is that they feel so ashamed. And, you know, again, my biggest bone to pick with all of that is that it usually does fall on the girl. All right. I get it. She's the one who's going to be carrying the baby, but um, she didn't make that baby by herself. So, yeah, absolutely. It, it's a fascinating thing. I'm, I just started reading a book called Regretting Motherhood last night. And one of the points in the beginning of the book is just how much expectation there's put on women in general. And it's interesting hearing what you're saying now in relation to that book, because women simultaneously are, are really pushed to have children. Like there's a lot of shame if you choose not to have children as well. And yet there's there's shame if you have children too early. There's shame if you have children too late. It's just like going back to these societal expectations and the pressure that women feel biologically when it comes to children and the timing of it. It's just very disturbing to me. And then to add another level or layer to this, you're a fourth generation Japanese American and second generation Filipino American. And you said that you felt like you had to spend the majority of your life trying to fit in and uh, not feeling Asian enough even because of the generational (laughs) sides of all of this. And I mean, that's just a lot to manage too. And the more I learn about you, I'm just thinking it's, it's really remarkable, like what you've had to deal with at these at such a young age. So I'm curious like how that's fit into your life and how you've moved through that given that you grew up in a, a racist country and there's still so much work that we have to do, uh, but you've had to move through it your whole life. I think for me, and a lot of it just comes from me observing how my mom handles things. I've tried not to let that either affect or bother me just because I didn't want that to be another label or another thing that would say, oh, you're trying to play a card or you're trying to play this. What's the terms? Like you're trying to play the race card or you're trying to play the gender card. And I just did not want that to be one of those things that was ultimately defining me. So I think because of that approach, like I said, I've tried not to let it affect me quite as much. But it is that awareness of it, that it's happening, that it's going on. It's very aware of what's going on. And, you know, I think I have that a different approach to it. Yeah. And it's awareness that I think has led itself to your ability to support people who don't feel like they're fitting in. And maybe it's 
not necessarily a gift. It's just part of who you are. And you have the ability to understand people in all these different levels, which I just think makes you such a remarkable person because you have experienced stigmas and judgment and shame and confusion and and masking. I mean, all of these things that you've you've had to go through. And I'm just uh, so grateful for the work that you're doing to to help others and help people realize that they actually do fit in, that nothing's wrong with them, that they are enough, that they can truly be accepted, that they can learn to find and set their boundaries and then also find ways to feel empowered. And we need so much more of that right now. Like I am just so grateful to be aware of you myself. I want to dive deep. I feel like even just looking at your Instagram account, I just visually, it's very pretty. It's the similar colors as I have on the, on the podcast uh, Instagram account with the purples and pink shades. But just the quotes you wrote, like the one I read at the very beginning of this are, are really soothing and helpful. I love the diagrams you have on there. And I am very grateful to have Zencaster as a sponsor. They have been so supportive of the show through social media and newsletter shout outs. Plus, they have truly incredible customer service. Their all-in-one podcast production platform keeps getting better and better because they take user feedback seriously. I'm especially grateful for the HD video recording features, which makes it easy to put this show on YouTube and social media. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try, and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of their pro plan, which, as I mentioned, is what I use for this show. If you have any questions about podcasting, send me a message, and I'd be happy to share more tips and tricks. And I'd also love to hear more about your podcast uh, how many episodes do you have out now and how frequently do you release them? I release new episodes of the podcast every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern and I'm up to 22 episodes. And yeah, it was just kind of breaking things down on the neurodivergent experience and really talking about those things and kind of explaining them in such a way that would make more sense. Because I think that's always been one of my big things. I used to be a, a parenting coach for parents of autistic children. And one of the main things that I helped them with was with IEPs, individual education programs, I think, in the United States. And it's just the language in there can be so confusing that it just gets really overwhelming. And there weren't and there aren't a lot of resources readily available for parents that break things down or that explain things in such a way that makes sense. Like most parents just weren't aware that you can, you don't, you don't have to wait for your child's scheduled IEP meeting. You can call for an IEP meeting at any time and the district has to grant you that meeting. It's protected under special education law. So that was just one of the big things and making people aware of that and doing so in such a way that wasn't complicated. It wasn't complex, but it also wasn't talking down. It was just in such a way that was easier to understand. So that's been part of the focus on the podcast was looking at some of these things and saying like, all right, well, 
this is what this is, like the executive dysfunctioning, for example, and just giving these kind of real world examples for people to say, all right, well, this is what your time blindness might end up looking like, or this is what your your procrastination might end up looking like, even though you may not recognize it for what it is, this is what it could look like, or working memory, sustained attention. I have a whole little mini series on executive dysfunctioning and it went over really well. And I was looking at it again. It's like, all right, there are some more, clearly some more episodes that need to be expanded on here. I think one of the more popular ones out of that series was on working memory and sustained attention, two separate episodes. But because it was geared towards adults, that's why I think they became so popular because a lot of the information that is out there now is geared towards kids. I fully understand why. And I'm not, you know, I'm eternally grateful for all of the information and the resources that are out there. But that does leave a gap in the information out there for adults. So how do you take these things and really develop them? Well, not develop them, but apply them to an adult. Because our brains are different. And what is true for a child and circumstances for children may not always be true circumstances for adults, especially when you take into consideration that at least if you can get your accommodations in place, special education speaking, you have access, you have ready, readily available, or at least you should have readily available access to, to support systems and to to therapists, like an occupational therapist or a speech therapist or a physical therapist. But for an adult, you don't always have those things available to you. So how do you then, as an adult, accommodate and kind of just create these things for yourself? So that was my biggest drive behind this podcast, was just bringing this light into it and this awareness of it and expanding on it in that way. And similar work over on my YouTube channel, I actually publish more on there than I do on my podcast. One of the things that I'm going to be bringing later in 2022 over on the YouTube channel is just neurodivergent talk. And it's just similar to this conversational style of, okay, let's talk about the diagnosis. Let's talk about our struggles. Let's talk about these things and really just say to people, it's like, look, this is who we are. This is how we are. That's so wonderful. I'm so glad that you're doing all of that. And what about on TikTok? I I know that you mentioned it, but I didn't have a chance to check out your TikTok account yet. So what are you doing over there? That one, I'm still trying to figure out my plan of action. So, (laughs) Well, you can always call on me to help because that's my favorite platform. So if you need ideas, I'm here for you. (laughs) But count on me. I'm following you there. Because, you know, there's actually, I I think you would actually thrive on there given there's a massive amount of interest on autism, ADHD, all different types of neurodivergence. People want to know. And I think maybe just the conversational style and just breaking it down into these 60 second or 
three minute long segments. I would watch every single one of those. (laughs) Fingers crossed. That's what you do. And just thank you for, for everything. I can tell that you put so much time, effort and passion into all of this. And as I've said many times during this episode, it's, it's so needed and valued and I cherish people like you. So also grateful that you're here today. I'm going to link to all of your platforms in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a full transcript, there's quotes, there'll be a video on there eventually, and also links to things that we mentioned. In fact, I found that Wall Street Journal um, article that I found recently, which is about TikTok diagnosis videos. <laughs> so I'm going to read that too myself now that I found the article. So I'll hire my mom is in there. Anything that we've mentioned will be linked and make it very easy for you to check out all of the amazing work that Corey is doing. Thank you so much for taking the time today. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Whitney. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> 